At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. All right, today, let's take out our Bibles and let's continue our sermon series, taking a look at 1 Peter, the letter that Paul writes to the church uh, to Christians, uh, encouraging them as they walk and navigating days. So take out your Bible and turn with me to First Peter. We're going to be looking in chapter 2, uh, and we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 of First Peter today. All right, about two years ago, um, as Pastor Doug was uh, contemplating and really looking through transitioning uh, um, and stepping down as senior pastor of the church, he had the elders uh, and uh, campus pastors and all of us go through a book called Mission Drift. You might have heard him mention that several years ago. And in the book, uh, the book Mission Drift talks about how uh, nonprofits, organizations, and institutions uh, if they lose sight of their identity or if they lose sight of their mission and purpose, many times they drift away from their intended purposes. And he says in, in the book, he was talking about the damaging effects it can, that mission drift uh, can cause organizations and can cause institutions. And even the implication of the book is how it can have implications and challenges to the church as well. And in the book, he highlights um, some, some of the big institutions that have drifted so far from their original mission. And I want to share some of them with you this morning. Uh, the first institution that he highlights in the book is Harvard University. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Harvard University was founded in 1936 and it was founded by some Calvinist Congregationalists. So it was identified as, as a, a place where pastors could go and to be trained for ministry. It was designed to be a mission-sending university where those that, that wanted to learn about missions could come and learn and then be mobilized to reach the world with the gospel. Did you know that? Harvard University. Well, what happened over time is Harvard University uh, began to drift away from its mission and moved from more conservative foundings to more liberal practices. And then the church saw this and they're like, hey, wait a minute, we see Harvard shifting. So what they did is another university was started called Yale in 1701. This was also founded by another congregationalist group with the desire to train pastors and missionaries. So it's, it's, was a, it was designed to be a pushback against Harvard University. Well, we know after uh, that was... So Harvard was founded in 1636. Yale came on at about 1701, so about uh, 60 years later. Um, and then shortly after that, in 1746, so 40 years later, Princeton University was also founded as a pushback against Yale because both Harvard and Yale began to drift, and so Princeton came on the scene. And then later on, a group of, group of Baptists in 1764 um, started Brown University as an opportunity uh, to train pastors and missionaries uh, for the gospel ministry. Now, if we look at those institutions today, we know that they have far been removed from their initial mission and purpose. They are no longer religious institutions that are seeking to help train people for ministry. Instead, they have become secular universities that are rotting the minds and hearts of people. 
You see, it's so important that uh, we understand that the, just the tendency of mission drift in the lives of institutions, but also in the places of churches. Churches run the risk of mission drift, uh, mission drift as well. And one of the things that the book talked about is that mission drift doesn't happen overnight. The ship doesn't get turned by, by, in one fell swoop. What happens in mission drift, and it usually is not just based on one leader. A leader doesn't necessarily come in and turn the ship in overnight. What happens is that it begins on the individual level. There become compromises within the individuals, within that organization, where they begin to either, they don't know the mission or they don't know the purpose, or they come in and they disagree with the mission or the purpose, and they seek to begin to communicate other things. And so what you have is that mission drift happens at the face-to-face level, at the individual level. And then it begins to change the whole community, and it changes the whole culture and it impacts the whole community life. Well, the reason that I wanna bring this up today is because the church, our church, in every generation is tempted towards drift. Each generation is, um, runs the risk of losing sight of its identity and purpose. Sometimes the the church goes the way of popular opinion or the church follows the latest fad or adopts, begins to adopt cultural practices that aren't biblical. And what can happen over time is the church can drift and go off course and really go off the rails and no longer be useful for the ministry of the gospel. Again, both individually and collectively. So today, what I want us to do is I want us to spend some time in God's word looking at the identity and also the purpose and mission of the church. I want us to to look to God's word and answer questions like, who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? We know these are important questions in all of our lives, right? That answering those questions inform every area of our life. Who are you? Why are you here? And where are you going? Right? How many of you guys have asked questions like that in your own individual life, right? Like, why am I here? Where am I going? And why? Well, we want to do that today for the church because this is exactly what Peter is doing in the passage today. We're going to look today at this passage as, as Peter is writing this letter to Christians. The Christians that were in modern-day Turkey, they were scattered about in uh, in cultures that were hostile towards the Christian faith. And so they were growing up in their Christian faith, trying to live out their Christian faith in a culture that was against them. And what Peter wants them to know is as the church, you need to know why you're here. And you need to know who you need to know who you are, why you're here, and where you're going. These questions will inform you, especially as the world around you tells you to go a different way. And the world around you is constantly saying, don't go this way, go this way. And so Peter wants to help identify the identity and purpose that those will inform the direction. And as we look in verse 9 today, what we're going to see is that Peter is directing this conversation today directly to believers. Now, believers are those that have come to consider the person of Jesus Christ, as we talked about last week. Remember, we talked about last week that that some will consider Jesus and he either will be the cornerstone of their life or they will reject him. 
So Peter's not talking about those that reject Jesus, but he's talking about those that have come to consider Jesus, consider his work on the cross, his death, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And they have placed faith in the work of Jesus, that they're pinning their hope of salvation in all eternity on the work of Jesus. So this is who Jesus is talking to. So he's talking to believers. And this identity as a believer, what we're going to see, that our foundational identity as a believer is that we are a redeemed people. As followers of Christ, as those who believe in Jesus, we are a redeemed people. And that's the big idea today as we're going to look at this passage is that we need to come to understand that believers are God's redeemed people. This beautiful word of redemption or this word of being redeemed is seeing something of value and marking it as value. Maybe the world doesn't see the thing that is redeemed as having value. That's why lots of times it's been discarded or it's over there. But this word of redemption, this beautiful picture of redemption is the fact that God comes to us and he gives us value. He redeems us. And so over the course of verses 9 and 10, these two verses, we're going to see three key realities of what it means to be for believers to be redeemed by God. So look with me in verse 9. Peter starts off, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The first reality that we see in this very short verse is that we need to know who you are. We need to know who you are or know who we are. And I love how Peter does this because he gives us some clear pictures that highlight our identity. And I want us to see here, too, that his identity that he's referring to is both on the collective idea, the whole community of the church, but then it also this identity is born in the heart of each individual. So each one of us bear this identity in our individualness, but also as our collectiveness. And in this way, we each have personal responsibility. It's not just the church but it, the church is made up of people. The church is made up of you and I. And you and I, as a part of the collective church, have a personal responsibility. Our responsibility is to watch over our thoughts, our actions, and our lifestyles. And, and to make sure that we're on a trajectory towards holiness. And here we see Peter is giving us this idea of the collectiveness that's made up of individuals. So this collective identity, he says, but you are. He wants us to see that now that we are in Christ, we have a specific identity. And he gives us four markers to help us understand this identity. He says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his own possessions. Now, I wonder where Peter came up with these descriptors. Do you think that Peter was just sitting back in his chair one day and he's getting ready to write this and he's like, hmm, what can, what can I encourage these, these believers that are living in difficult times that I could say about their identity? Let me just, let me just come up with some names. Well, no, that's not exactly what, what Peter was doing. What Peter is doing is actually something that's very masterful. Peter is, is taking a look at how God, through Scripture, has identified his people. That he's taking from, from different Old, passage, Old Testament texts and Old Testament passage, and he's utilizing phrases from the Old Testament that speak to the identity of God's people. 
And in some way, what he's doing is he's drawing connections between the identity and purpose of God's people from across all scriptures. And now he's connecting it to the people of God, those who believe in Jesus. Now, I want to say something that just give you a side observation right here. This is Peter. Do you remember Peter when we first met Peter? Like in the New Testament? Remember Peter was a fisherman? He probably was a cusser because he was a sailor. He probably was a dirty guy. He probably wasn't the most outstanding citizen of of the world at, at his time. But now do you see how the gospel and how his faith in Christ has so transformed his life? Like this is a totally different guy. This is a guy that probably wasn't very well educated. And now he's able to, because of the work of of Christ in his life and and walking with Jesus for all those years and being so now uh, saturating his life with scripture, that he's able to pull back in a very articulate and a very pastoral way, be able to communicate the story of scripture in a way that the simple-minded person could understand. Like, this is masterful. This is Peter who is now no longer fishing for fish, but he's fishing for men. He's caring for the souls of the church. And even now he's caring for your soul and he's caring for my soul because he wants us to see the connectedness of all of God in creation towards what God's plan and his purpose is. Like this is a big deal to see God's work in Peter's life. So how does Peter describe our identity? He gives us these beautiful markers. He first, he says, you are a chosen race. Peter is drawing this identity from several passages in the Old Testament, but primarily I I see this showing up in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six through eight. Let me read that for you. He says, this is um, God describing the, uh, the people of God in the Old Testament. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand, out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see the the connectedness of that passage back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 to what he says in 1 Peter? You see, what we need to understand is part of the foundation identi- foundational identity of the people of God is the fact that we are chosen by him. We are chosen by him in Christ. This, this is the idea, the Bible talks about this idea as being election or being elected. That God, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite knowledge, in his infinite love, has chosen a people to represent himself. And this is what he says about the people of God in the Old Testament now more closely talks about us, that we are a chosen race. This choosing we see does not come from within us. You see, as as he says in that passage, he, he didn't choose you because you were more in number. Actually, you were few in number. So the basis of God's choosing in our life is not based on who we are or what we've done. 
The basis of God's choosing in our lives that we see in Deuteronomy chapter seven is based in his love. Let me read it to you again so that you can see that it's not based on your merit. It's not based on the color of your skin. It's not based on what political party that you agree with or align with. It's based on his love. Let me read this to you again. It was not because you were more in number than any other people in, in uh, any other people, but that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. He says, for you are the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you that he loves you. So you have been chosen because of the Lord's love. It was the, that the Lord loved you, that he was chosen to set his love on you. Does, does that make sense? You're not chosen because of who you are. You're chosen because the Lord has set out to love you. And he chose you to be loved by him. So the basis of our choosing is formed in God's love. The doctrine of election should be deeply humbling. Because we bring nothing to the table. We do nothing for the love of God. It is the love that God has for us that we are a chosen race. That's amazing. It's amazing that he loves you because he chose to set his love on you. Not because of who you are. But then he goes on. He wants to help us further understand that we are not only a chosen race, but then he gives us three identity markers that flow from this identity of being chosen that we find in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Again, we see this identity further flushing out. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore on eagles wing, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kind be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Again, this passage is foundational to the identity, of, identity and mission of the nation of Israel. This actually takes place as, as God has called his people out of slavery from Egypt and they're at the mountain where he has not yet given them the Ten Commandments, but before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he wants them to know who they are, that they need to understand that they are, a, that they are loved by him, that they are a treasured possession by God and now he gives them their purpose and in this we see three phases or three phrases that mark our identity that we see back in Exodus that we also see again in verse Peter he says that you are a royal priesthood first of all that idea of royal right that we're on a mission from the king that we have been set aside by the king as royal that we've been given the blessings of being a part of a greater kingdom so we are a royal priesthood now we talked about this a little bit last week but we know from uh, the the ancient role in ancient Israel that the priest was supposed to be designated the people of the priests were supposed to be designated in order 
to represent God to the people and the people to God. They were the, in, the mediators or they, they, were, they were the in-betweeners between a holy God and sinful man. They were communicating to God about the needs of the people and they were communicating uh, God to the people. And so they served as priests. Part of our identity as the church is that when we gather together in community, we are called to be the mediators of God's presence to the world that doesn't know him. We're called to be priests. We are called to be set apart so that we can represent God and his kingdom to the rest of creation. But we're also called not only to be priests when we gather here in this place, we're called to be priests in our everyday lives. In each one of our human relationships, in each one of our human interactions, we are called to be priests. So as we go to Facebook or social media, we're called to be priests. We're called in our lives and the things that we do and how we spend our vacation, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, who we choose to hang out with. We're called to be priests. That means every day our lives are representing our king. Does your life represent your king? Does your life and the things that you do and the things that you say and the, and the places that you go, does that represent your king? Are you representing God? Are you the best representation of God to the world that you live in? Or are you really good at being a priest on Sunday morning? Are you really good around your Christian friends keeping up that Christian identity? Or do you take that Christian identity with you everywhere you go? We're a royal priesthood. He says we're also a holy nation. This is a a beautiful picture of of God doing two things to us. First, as holy, that means that we're set apart, that when we come to faith in Jesus, we are set apart from the world. So that means we're, we're holy. But then we are a nation. We have a new ethnicity. We have a a new way that we're known by. We have a new name. We have a new family. We have a new people that we identify with. So we identify with holy or called out or set apart people. But then he goes on and he says, we are also people of his own possession. This last phrase that Peter uses speaks to the fact that we are a people who are specifically for God. God saves us, God redeems us, God calls us out so that we are for him. So that the world looks at us, they see him, that we belong to him. We are his possessions. We are no longer autonomous, but we are dependent completely on him. So as we put all this together as our key identity, what we understand is that we are chosen by him. We represent him. We are set apart for him. And ultimately, we are his possessions. This is who we are. This is who God declares that we are. And we need to be reminded of this, that we no longer think of ourselves based on our gender, that we no longer think of ourselves based on the color of our skin. We no longer think of ourselves uh, through a cultural lens. We no longer think of ourselves based on the job that we have. We no longer think about ourselves by how much money we make. We think of ourselves as a child of God. 
We see ourselves as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belong to God. That changes everything. That changes the way we interact with this current world. We don't love and run after the things of this world. We live in this beautiful identity that cannot be taken away. Now, I love the fact that I'm adopted. Like in real life, I really am adopted. And I, and I remember the first day that my, um, my dad set me down. They never tried to hide it from me, but they waited until I could understand what that meant, what adopt, being adopted meant. And I'll never forget the day that my dad told me the story. He sat me down on the couch and he's like, he's like, Jeff, I gotta tell you a story. And this is a true story and this is a good story. And it's a story that you're gonna love. And uh, he told the story about how uh, my mom and my dad were, were praying for, for a child because they couldn't have kids of their own. And they kept praying and they kept praying and they kept praying. And they uh, decided that they were going, that God wanted them to, to look into foster care or even adoption. So they stepped out in faith. And they said, we don't know what God's going to do. We don't, we, this is weird for us. We, we want to have a kid of our own. But if this is the, the door that God is opening, then we want to do that. And he said, guess what? God gave us you. God gave us you. You were the one that he brought our way. But guess what? God was also at work in your life before you were even born. Because your, your mom that gave birth to you, she was 13 years old or 12 years old when she gave birth to you. And your birth dad was 13 years old. And they knew they couldn't have you. And so what God was magnificently doing was he was giving you life here so that you could come and be a part of our family. He spared your life and he saved your life and now you bear the name Keith. This is your name and this is what he told me. I can't remember exactly how old I am. Oh, I was at the time, maybe five or six. But he says, you're a Keith now. And that means you have all the benefits and the responsibility of being a Keith. Because everywhere you go, you're gonna take that name. And he said, I'm gonna guarantee you this. I'm gonna love you as your dad. And I'm never gonna stop loving you as your dad. So embrace and live in this new identity. I'll never forget, man. I was like, wow, that's a massive story. I didn't realize that all of that took place. I didn't even know it. I was just along for the ride. But now that I understand, like that, that means that there's some responsibility there. And in the same way, in our Christian identity, you may have never really realized, you may have just thought, hey, I just signed up to get saved and now I just wanna follow this Jesus, whatever that means. No, you signed up for a lot more. You bear the name of Jesus. Christian means little Christ, right? So we live like Jesus in our every single day. And what Peter is saying is you have this awesome identity. Understand who you are that you are loved by God, that you have been chosen. You've been hand-picked. And we've talked about this already, that God has uniquely designed you to be alive in history right now. Like, you have purpose and you have meaning in the scheme of all history right now. And some Christians, I'm afraid, are gonna miss it. They're gonna miss the opportunity to seize the season that we're living in right now. That they're gonna be like, I'm going to heaven, that's okay, I'm out. I'm gonna sit on the sidelines, I'm gonna sit back and just let life happen. Well, guess what? You're doing that, that's setting up the church to drift. 
You personally, if you choose to disengage from culture at this time, to disengage from the mission that God's given us, you're sitting on the sidelines, you're moving, you're one of those cogs in the wheel that's moving the ship towards drift. Don't. Don't. In our identity where we live right now, let's choose to follow the Lord. Second of all, not only do we need to understand who we are, we need to understand why why you are here. Let's look again in verse two. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. And then now here's where we see the purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He quickly moves from identity to purpose. And what is our purpose? Why are we here? To proclaim his excellencies. That's why we're here. Not only are we called to be priests, to be God's representatives, we're also called to be prophets. We are to communicate the excellencies of God, realizing all that God has done. We communicate that. I love how Wayne Grudem uh, explains this excellencies of God. He defines it like this. He says, to proclaim God's excellencies is to speak of all he is and all he has done. And the word that Peter uses to proclaim here is not used um, anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's used over and over again in the book of Psalms to talk about praising or speaking of praises, sharing praises to God. So our job, our role, our opportunity is to uh, glorify God by proclaiming his excellencies, talking about all the things that he has done all the ways that he has done amazing things. And what is the most amazing thing that he's done? Well, we see here in the passage, the most amazing thing that he has done is he's called you out of darkness into light. That's what we are to proclaim. We're to proclaim our testimony, the testimony that God has given us, how God has moved into our lives and set us on a path towards holiness, how God has redeemed us or pulled us out of the darkness and set us on a path towards light, how God has saved us from our sin. What do we proclaim? We proclaim the gospel. The gospel is this, is that we're born sinners and we're born rebels against God. And if we die as rebels against God, we go to a place called hell for all eternity. But God loves us so much that he didn't want us to leave us in that helpless state. So he sent Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life. He obeyed the Father every single step of the way. And his whole purpose was to go to a cross so his body could be broken and his blood could be spilled so that we could be forgiven for our sins. Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And now, if we place our faith in Jesus, our lives are changed forever. If you're here today and you haven't come to the place of placing faith in Jesus, I encourage you to do it today. Today is the day that you call on the name of the Lord for salvation. This is proclaiming his excellencies. Another way of saying this is thinking about we always communicate or talk about what we love, right? Or what we're excited about. What, what we've experienced the most joy in this life is easy for us to communicate. Think about the, the single person that finally gets engaged, right? Are they silent? 
No, they want everyone to know. They, they, they go everywhere and they tell everyone, hey, I, I once was single, but now I'm engaged. I'm getting ready to get married. Come to my wedding. Come be a part of where I'm at and, and celebrate this with me. Or the grandparent that ha- finally gets a chance to have a grandkid, right? You don't even have to like open. You just have to give a grandparent like a pause in a sentence and then they'll tell you about their grandkids. Why? Because they love their grandkids, there's something special about grandkids. I mean, I know parents love their kids, but grandparents love their grandkids. Or that guy that finally, after years and years and years, finally restores that old car. Like he wants to tell the world about what he has done. He wants to tell the world about what he is excited about. In much the same way, those of us that are followers of Jesus that have experienced the grace and mercy of the Lord should be communicators of that great message. Telling what God has done in our lives. Communicating his excellencies. Not just talking about the things that God has given you as though we're peddling some prosperity gospel that if you believe in Jesus, then you'll get a new car, you'll get a new, a new house, and you'll get a new, new life and all that other stuff. That's not what we're saying. Don't, don't talk about the, the, the gifts and forget the giver. Talk about what he's done in your life. When you are involved in relationships with other people, talk about how God got you through a similar situation. Talk, talk about when you struggle with a disobedient child, how you spent time praying for that child and how you saw God soften the heart of your child. Or when you were single, how you, you prayed over and over and over again, God, send me, send me the husband or wife that you have for me. Help me be faithful while I wait for that. But God, do that. And then when he does, you celebrate that. See, God is interactive in each one of our lives and he's doing a lot of things and he's working all around us and God calls us to share of his excellencies. Lastly, we know what God did. Look at me, verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is helping us understand that all of our identity is rooted or comes from God's action. That God on our behalf is doing all of the action to save us and to to show us the way he wants us to live. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Who did that? God did that. Once you had not received mercy, once you were an object of wrath, but now because of your faith in Jesus, you now have received mercy. God is on our behalf. He's working to redeem us. He's working to set us apart. He's working to love us. God is at work. Have you ever tried to start a fire? Like there are a couple of things that you need in order to to have a fire, right? You need to have something that an an igniter and then you need to have a fuel, right? And and many times uh, you can start a fire with gasoline, but if the gasoline burns up and there's nothing for it to to burn after that, then it goes out. And uh, with making a fire, this is the time of year, many people have bonfires and things like that. You know that if you're gonna have a really good bonfire, you need wood and you need an igniter, right? And you also, once you light that thing up, you still need to tend to it because as soon as you remove the fuel or remove logs from the fire, the fire goes out. 
In much the same way as we look at the church, the gospel is the fuel for the church. Right? If we are to continue on doing what God calls us to do, to share about all that he has done, we share about what he's done, which is the gospel. And if we remove that from our lives, if we remove that from the church, what's going to happen to the church? It's going to die. We have the greatest message of all time. We have at our disposal everything that the world needs. Right? The world doesn't need another diet pill. The world doesn't need another political leader to come on the scene. The world doesn't need another self-help book. What the world needs is the gospel. And guess what? You and I own the gospel. You and I have it inside of our lives, and we need to be communicators of that in this day and in this time, specifically as we see the world around us hurting and walking around in all kinds of darkness. So today, remember I said at the beginning, what is God calling you to do, that next step of faith? Maybe your heart's been broken by things in this world and you've been sitting on the sidelines and God's now saying, now, remember that thing that you were passionate about? Get back involved, get re-engaged in it. Maybe it's starting a new ministry. Maybe it's um, being a church member. Maybe it's whatever it is, but each one of us uh, consider taking that next step of what God wants us to do next. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words today. We thank you for your words of truth. We thank you, God, about our amazing identity Father, that we are chosen by you, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to you. Help us in these days, Father, to be a church that doesn't just sit on our identity but lives out our identity through the opportunities that you give us to proclaim your excellencies. Help us, Father, to be people that will be faithful to do that. But Father, also, what you're asking us to do, help us, God, in our own individual ways to be faithful, to respond, and to be obedient. In these next few moments, God, as we sing, would you continue to allow your words to penetrate our hearts and to change us from the inside out? For you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.